1 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 24. Hope everybody's having a, a good start to the year. I, I'll admit, once you hit your 30s, staying up late is not something really you want to do, especially when you have a number of kids. So I went to bed at 9.30 and it was glorious. It was great. Slept off. Didn't hear a single firework. <clears throat> yeah, we're in, so we're in chapter 9. We're looking at verses 1 through 24. And this is where we meet our first king, our first king of Israel. We'll meet Saul as a young man looking after, trying to find his lost donkeys. And then he runs into Samuel. Uh, it's a little bit longer of a, a reading, so I'm going to have you just remain seated as I read God's word. This is God's word. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there, and perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up to the hill, up the hill to the city, They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. But the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately." So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. 
And then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it, and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. This is God's word. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight and honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, we meet we meet Saul. First thing we learn about him is, is that he's the son of this man named Kish, who is a man of great wealth. They are from the tribe of Benjamin. This may seem like a, a, a strange turn, an obscure turn in our, in our narrative here. But I want to get right to the point, to the heart of why God has this passage here for us. And I have an outline in your bulletin this morning, and I've got three reads, three points here. And in the story of Saul, and in, in, in our story, in our life story, in, in your story and mine, we see that God is at work. It may seem in, in narratives like this that where, what is God doing? What, he seems like he's behind the scenes, right? We see these actions that seem kind of random, uneventful. These donkeys are lost, but we do see God at work. So we see God is at work. We see that God is preparing us for something better. And God is aiming for our hearts. Those are the three truths of how we see God at work in this passage and in our lives. So first, let's look at that idea that God is at work. God is at work. God is at work in the first way in the choosing of Saul. This is not just about a young man looking for donkeys. Right? This, this is not just about uh, a young man working on the farm, going on an errand for his, his, his father. Did you notice the great storytelling in this chapter? One of the, great, one of the reasons I love going through the Old Testament narratives and history is, is great storytelling like this. Do you see how it sort of keeps us in suspense in a bit. It, it, it keeps us in suspense but because we know that Saul, we know this is Saul who's going to be king and we know who he's looking for. He's looking for these donkeys but he's ultimately going to meet this man of God. We all know who the man of God is. We've been reading about Samuel all the way through this, uh, this first part of 1 Samuel. The whole book is named after him. But it says this man of God. And so whenever you know more than the main character, that's, that's a great storytelling piece because it clues us in. We know more than Saul, right? 
And so it makes it exciting. This is great narrative, great storytelling. And so this is not just about a boy looking for donkeys. God is orchestrating every moment in this story, in the choosing of Saul. He's orchestrating it. And so it may, it may be interesting. An interesting question may come to your own mind. Does God orchestrate my moments too? Does God orchestrate the moments of your life? Or is this just reserved for kings? Is this God's involvement in someone's life to this this level of detail? Is it just for important moments in the history of the world and in the history of redemption? Or does he orchestrate our moments too? Well, I want to argue that God is at work not just in the choosing of Saul, but in the providence of life in general. But in all of your life, God is at work. I want to, if you don't know this word, I want to uh, teach it to you this morning. And that's this idea of the providence of God. That we do not live our lives by chance. So we're not, God is not a, a cosmic uh, clockmaker. That we're not deists. We don't believe that, the Bible does not teach that the world was just created by God and then he sort of left it to its own devices, sort of unravel however it, he, however it will without his intervention. No, God is involved intimately with your life and my life and in all of history. And so what is the, the providence of God? The Heidelberg Catechism says it very well. It says, the providence of God is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds us as with his hand, and heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade and rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly's hand, fatherly hand. Everything in your life comes from your father's hand. And I love that the catechism follows up with another question. Well, how does knowing this help us? What good does this do to to know this? It answers, it means we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. We can have hope for the future because we have a faithful God that will never separate us from him. You might be wondering, well, where in Scripture do we read about this, this idea of the providence of God? Well, in James chapter 4, 13 through 15, there's an interesting uh, piece that, that James writes. He says, Come now, you who say today, tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Right? We cannot say, I'm going to do the plans I have tomorrow without first saying, if God wills. Maybe you're making resolutions for the new year. Before you write that resolution, 
right if God wills. Right, that God is 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 over our entire lives. That nothing in our lives is truly accidental. That everything comes from your loving heavenly Father's hand. And so this is not just a story about a boy looking for donkeys by accident. He he stumbles upon Samuel. No, this is God at work in the details of life. So he's 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 at work in the choosing of Saul. He's in the, he's at work in the providence of our lives. He's also at work in the ordinary, small, and difficult parts of your life. God is at work in the pain of your life. Anybody going through physical pain right now? Mental, emotional, spiritual. God is at work in those difficult parts of your life. Also, in the discouragement. Have you dealt with discouragement? As you, as, as, I love preaching the first sermon of the year because it's, it's a good point to look back and look forward. We're at a turning point. And so as you look back, what are the discouragements that you, that you went through? When you feel that nothing you do really matters or makes a difference. Have you ever felt that way? I was talking to my wife about uh, just thinking about goals for the next year. And she confided in me that at the beginning of last year, she was making goals in her own mind and, and planning to do all, make all these changes. She's really good at um, making our kids do chores and having good systems in our household. And she had all these goals, but neither her nor I knew that 19 days into the, the, that year, a car was going to hit our house and our entire year was going to be changed. And we'd have to move twice, find a rental, deal with insurance, and everything was sidelined. We do not know right, what the next year holds. But those were discouraging times. When you make all these plans, you make all these goals, and it all gets pushed to the side. We were talking last night with some friends about a vision board. I don't know if anybody's heard of a vision board, but basically it's a collage you make from magazines, and it's basically a way to visualize things you want to do in the new year or goals you have, what's on your bucket list, what you want to achieve, a way to visualize that and somehow make it happen. It helps you do that. Um, But as we do our vision boards, if that's something you do, say, if God wills, if God wants it, first and foremost. We also see God work, so we we see him work in the ordinary, the small, difficult parts of our life, but also in the unending work. Do you have work, things you do in your life that just seem like they don't end? (laughs) They just keep going and going and going. Raising children is like that sometimes. Picking up toys off the floor, loading dishes, drying dishes, doing laundry, unending work. (laughs) And I know some of you take care of uh, aging parents. And that can be hard, too, and difficult, unending. Um, Taking care of parents and raising children is similar in in, in some ways in that you don't always get thanked for it. It seems monotonous. But also, there's work that's just plain mundane and ordinary, too. It's those things that we just are called to do, and we don't love it, but we just have to do it, and we do it every single day like Saul, looking for donkeys. It's simple, it's ordinary work, 
But God is at work in those ordinary moments. He was simply doing what he was told. He was looking for the donkeys, and God was going to use him to change Israel forever, becoming their first king. So that's the first thing we we learn is that God is at work. Secondly, we see that God is preparing us for something better. So we see in the story, going back to verse 3, Saul uh, goes on this journey. Kish sends him out. He says, take one of the young men with you, one of these servants. Arise and go look for the donkeys. And then in in verses 4, through uh, actually all of verse 4, he's basically going from town to town looking for these donkeys and not finding them. But let's think about Saul himself. Many of us already know Saul. We already know the, the problems that he'll have. We know he's not the best king Israel would ever have. He is the first. But he's no David, right? We know David will come. I mean, they're going to interact in the coming chapters. But don't you get a sense in reading this chapter that there's something off about Saul? He's a little bit clueless, isn't he? Look at verse 7. Saul's talking to his servant. They're talking about you have to bring something to this this, uh, godly man man of God. And then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For our bread and our sacks is gone and there's no present to bring to the man of God. Notice he's, he's, he calls him a man. He calls him the man of God, but he doesn't know his name. Samuel was well known in Israel. So something's off here that Saul doesn't even know who, who Samuel is. He's, he was a judge for a really long time, highly regarded. He didn't know about Samuel. So that's a little strange at first. And then as well, as we go down to verse 18, when he actually approaches Samuel, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where is the house of the seer? So we see that he doesn't even recognize Samuel when he sees him. He doesn't know who he is from from reputation, but he also doesn't even recognize him when he's in the presence of him. And then he also doesn't even understand why Samuel is talking to him in a favorable way. He says in verse 21, Saul Saul answered and says, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? He doesn't understand the favor that he's being, uh, that's being talked to him from Samuel. So we sense, we sense some problems with Saul. He seems a little off. He's not quite with it, a little bit clueless as to what's going on. And so I, I sometimes struggle with these parts of Israel's history. I almost want to ask God, why not skip to David? <laughs> why, why even have this chapter on, Sam, or on Saul? Why not just jump to the good king? And skip the bad king. What's the point of Saul if a better king would come eventually? Well, if you, if you remember, uh, Israel's demanding a king. And, we were, and if you recall, God saw it as a rejection of his kingship, his lordship over them. But he still allowed it. And so we, if, you, if, you know it, if you think maybe, okay, God is probably going to teach them something, isn't he, with this whole kingship idea. He's re- they're rejecting his kingship. And so we know this throughout life, that experience is often the best teacher. Learning through 
experience. Jonathan Dodson writes, sometimes we have to walk with people all the way around the barn to get to the front door. It reminded me of a story when I was younger. One of my sister's friends was hanging out at our house, and if you leave the back door and there's a back porch, you're supposed to turn right out of the back of the house, and you'll go to the cars in the parking lot, and it's about 10 feet away. But she happened to turn left. She went out the back door, turned left, and the house was pretty large, and she walked all the way around the other side of the house. And we're sitting in the living room hanging out, and we see her trudging along through the front yard to get all the way to the parking lot. She made it there eventually. But I'll tell you this, she experienced something that she will never have to go through again. She, didn't, she experienced taking a wrong turn. And she, she now knows, at that point after, she knew she was supposed to go right. Jonathan Dotson says, we, we have to walk with people all the way around the barn to get to the front door. Otherwise, they might not actually go in. A good leader like God listens to others even if it feels inefficient because love is inefficient. Loving people is inefficient. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and been done with creation, redemption, history, the whole thing. But instead he threw efficiency to the wind and wastefully entered our mess to bring about new creation. Jesus entered our, new, our creation. He put on, as we talked about at Christmas, he put on humanity when he could have just snapped his fingers and brought his people up to be with him. There's an inefficiency to love. And that is a part of what's going on with Saul, that, 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 that God is doing something here to teach and to stick with his people and to love them, even through this imperfect king, Saul. And so as we think about those difficult things that God is maybe teaching us, we need to be reminded that God is preparing you and me for better things. That every challenge you face, every challenge you faced last year and what you will face in the coming year, it's meant to draw you closer to God. It's meant to make you trust him more. So reflect for, with me for a minute. What challenges did you endure this last year? I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready for a new year. What challenges did did you endure? But it would be unwise for us to to just run away from those challenges and say, oh, I'm glad I made it through 2022. I'm ready for a new year without reflecting on God's faithfulness to you and how they created intimacy with God. How How do you trust God more at the start of this year than you did last year? And then you may be thinking, what challenges am I facing this coming year? What challenges may be up ahead? Some we may anticipate. Some challenges you might see on the horizon. But mostly we don't have any idea, do we? Therefore, what do we do? We have to trust. We have to look to him. You see, for, for, for us, for believers in Christ, there's a difference between obedience and hope. They're related, but there's a difference between obedience and hope. My old professor, J.V. Fesco, writes, my only hope for today and tomorrow is not my plans, but his providence. Not my intelligence, but his wisdom. Not my obedience, but Christ's righteousness. 
not my perseverance, but his faithfulness. Are all those things good? Plans, intelligence, obedience, perseverance. Are are those things good? Are we called to do those things? Absolutely. We're called to plan. We're called to obey. But our hope doesn't come from them. Our hope isn't in our obedience. Our hope is not in our plans. Our hope has to be in God's faithfulness to us. And so, as we enter this new year, I want you to remember that every challenge is meant to increase your holiness. Romans 5, 3-5, through 5, I read this earlier. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's why God takes us through the things that we have to go through. That's why Saul is there to produce endurance for God's people. But he wasn't all bad. Saul is an interesting character. He's one of the most complex characters in all of Scripture. There's some good in him as well as bad. And we see an important verse, and probably the important word or uh, sentence here, is God's word to Samuel. So look at verse 16. This is the Lord speaking to Samuel. He says, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel, and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. So focusing on that phrase in verse 16, I, I, I will send you a man. This is important. This is the gospel for us this morning, that Saul would serve a purpose for a time, that he would lead his people to victory over their enemies, that he is the man for the moment, that, that God did choose him. He did put him there. And he is a man that will bring victory for his people at least temporarily. And it's, it's a reminder of the ultimate man that we all need. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So every king in Israel, even if they were bad, even if they struggled, they would point forward to the need and the coming man, Christ Jesus. And here is where it's so sweet to hear God's word and compassion to his people. In verse 17, actually, end of verse 16, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. That is the Old Testament in a nutshell, isn't it? I've seen my people and their cry has come to me. God's compassion for his sinful people. One commentator says it denotes a very tender sympathy, a concern for all that they have been suffering and a resolution to interpose on their behalf. Listen to this, believer. God is never impassive nor indifferent to the sorrows and sufferings of his people. This is the same people who want an earthly king. They want to reject God as their king, but he's got compassion on them. Dale Ralph Davis says, although Yahweh sees Israel's idolatry in their cry for a king, he also hears her distress in her call for relief. Israel's stupidity 
cannot wither Yahweh's compassion. Your and my stupidity cannot wither God's compassion for you and me. Sin, if you think about it, anytime you sin and disobey, it's, it's stupidity, right? It's irrational that we would reject the giver of life, our, our Savior Jesus, that we would sin against him is stupidity. But isn't it good news that stupidity cannot wither Yahweh's compassion? He continually reaches out, continually pursues us with his love and his grace and forgiveness. The last thing we see with this passage is that while God is at work and God is preparing for us something better, he's also aiming for our hearts. God wants your heart and my heart. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 9. As we get introduced to Saul again. So we understand uh, the line he's from. Uh, this uh, Kish is his father. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, man of wealth. In verse 2, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. That word handsome is really tov, which is, means, means good, a good young man, but it certainly... Uh, out of context, in context, it, it, it can be seen as handsome because it talks about his figure as he, he had these shoulders. He was taller than any of the people. He was a politician, wasn't he? He was, he was a, a good-looking leader. Have you ever asked the question, why are most politicians physically attractive? Not all, right? There's some who are like, no, they're not, they're not very attractive. But most are, right? Most politicians are physically attractive. A study conducted by Loyola University and the University of Alabama concluded that voters evaluate physically attractive political candidates more favorably than unattractive candidates. This effect has been documented in controlled experiments and real-world studies. A vivid example occurred when John F. Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon in the 1960 presidential election. Research suggests that Kennedy's superior image may have tipped the scale in this close election. Effects of appearance on a candidate evaluation are due to the physical attractiveness stereotype, they call it. This stereotype leads individuals to presume attractive people are more poised, interesting, well-adjusted, exciting, socially skilled, and successful than unattractive people. The visual appearance of a person activates the stereotype in a relatively immediate and automatic fashion, meaning we all do this. We are drawn toward attractiveness in our leaders. That we look on the outside, don't we? We judge a person by what they look like. That's just human nature. But the difference between us and God is that God looks on the heart. God judges based upon what he sees on the inside. And so this story has a bit of irony this morning because Saul is really God's pick that's after the people's heart. He picks a handsome man. He picks a man that's tall, that's from this family of wealth to show the people why it doesn't work. He's teaching them this lesson, that it's not going to work. So he had the looks, but he also had the story. He had this, if you, if you go back to verse 21, and his, 
is Saul's response to Samuel was that, aren't I from the least of the tribes of Benjamin? So he has this sort of rags to riches, uh, you know, the small tribe to, to being chosen to lead kind of story. Everybody loves that story. So he's got the looks, he's got the story, but we know he, he doesn't have the heart. He doesn't ultimately have the heart. But we know the king that would, and that's David. And so God already is, is setting up this contrast between how, how Saul would fail and David would succeed. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, God in Christ shows us the leader that we all need. And we wouldn't have chosen him. If you think you would have chosen him, we wouldn't have. Because Isaiah 53 says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's the true leader that God brought to save us, the one we wouldn't want to look at. And so we wouldn't have chosen Jesus, but thank the Lord he chose us. In that same chapter, Isaiah 53 He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought you and I peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We wouldn't have chosen Jesus, but he chose us. He died for us so that we might live. So as I close this morning, I want you to remember these three things. As As we look forward to this new year, remember God is at work. God is preparing better things for you through that difficult time that you're going through. He's preparing better things for you. And number three, he wants your heart. He wants your heart at the end of the day. So when we think about God is at work, what should we do? Be faithful. Be faithful in the the ordinary, the difficult, and the painful things God has given you. Be, Be faithful. What are those donkeys that you're searching after in 2020 and this next year? Be faithful. God is going to be there with you. Secondly, God's preparing better things for you, so be, be hopeful. For those things that are difficult, he will draw you closer to, your, to himself. God will give you what you need in the midst of those difficulties that he's preparing better things for. And lastly, God looks at your heart. He's aiming for the heart, so be vulnerable. It's not easy to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable means you need to trust. But he's, he's telling you, open your heart up. I'm looking at you. I'm looking inside you. And God wants all of you. He doesn't just want a piece of you. He wants the whole thing because he loves you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this message this morning of of your relentless pursuit of us, of your compassion when you hear us cry out for you. We thank you for your provision of a king, even the king that wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to be the ultimate king. And neither was David, for they all point to the true king, Jesus, who none of us would have chosen, but was sent to die so that we could live and forgive us of all of our sins. So, Father, would you encourage us in this new year? Give us strength. Help us to 
run to you, run to your word this year, to run to the church, and to be with your people. Would you encourage us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.